Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Thomas Sines, President and General Counsel with the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, who assesses President Biden's immigration reform proposals. Journalist and author Mike Giglio, who talks about what's next for pro-Trump militia groups, after the failed January 6th Capitol insurrection. And Bo Schuff, executive director of the group DC Vote, who explains the history behind the current battle to secure political representation for the 700,000 residents of Washington, DC. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Days before Uganda's disputed January 15th election, the government shut down the Internet, which hindered the ability of the opposition party to challenge voting irregularities. President Yoweri Museveni, who has been in power for 35 years, was declared winner for his sixth term. Election officials said Museveni won with 59% of the vote, while main opposition candidate Bobby Wine, a pop music singer and anti-corruption activist, won 35%. After the election, Wine, who waged a vigorous campaign on social media, was placed under house arrest and prevented from speaking with visitors, including U.S. Ambassador Natalie Brown. The 2021 election cycle stood out for the brazenness of official attempts to intimidate the opposition and the ferocity of the police response to protests. During the campaign, hundreds of opposition leaders, human rights activists, and journalists were detained. During a police confrontation, an army truck ran over one of Wine's key aides, fatally injuring him. In late November, police killed 54 opposition protesters in the capital city of Kampala. Despite human rights abuses, Uganda receives more than $970 million a year in U.S. support, including more than $100 million in military aid. Wealthy Wall Street investors have set their sights on the Colorado River under strain from historic droughts, forest fires, and climate change. The river runs through several western states. The New York Times reports that in rural Arizona, investors are buying up water rights in rural communities. The investor's goal is to transfer water to Metro Phoenix. Falling water levels in the lower reaches of the Colorado River, which stretches from the western slope of Colorado into northern Mexico, could undermine current water-sharing agreements set under the Colorado River Compact. Seven states are now renegotiating the agreement amid a dramatic decrease in water levels in both Lake Mead in Arizona and Lake Powell in Nevada. States are looking for options to avoid mandatory water cuts. Across the Colorado River Basin, states are debating an option known as demand management, which would pay farmers to stop irrigating their land. Much of the policy debate around this option is dominated by the Walton Family Foundation, heirs of Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart. The foundation donates $25 million annually to nonprofit environmental groups and media outlets focused on the future of the Colorado River. 
In These Times magazine concludes that the Foundation's millions in contributions have succeeded in shaping positive media coverage of the Walton's preferred policy solution, which is demand management. Across the U.S., 9,000 federally subsidized low-income housing properties in 480 cities, including hundreds of apartments and townhouses, sit within a mile of a Superfund toxic cleanup site. According to an investigation conducted by The Intercept, public housing residents receive little or no communication about these hazards from the Environmental Protection Agency or the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development. What's more, the federal government rarely relocates public housing residents who live dangerously close to toxic environments. Many public housing units were built on cheap land in active industrial zones like North Birmingham, Alabama. A third of the impacted units located there are near Superfund sites built before the Superfund law was implemented in 1980. Michael Kane of the National Alliance of HUD Tenants said, Most of the time, people that live on toxic sites don't know their kids are going out and playing on contaminated land with lead and other toxins. Local environmental activists continue to push for federal oversight through the Superfund program, which could bring more money to help mitigate negative health effects. Some activists are optimistic that under the new Biden administration, incoming leaders at the EPA and HUD will make oversight a priority. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. On the first day of his presidency, Joe Biden signed a stack of executive orders, reversing many of Donald Trump's most controversial and cruel initiatives, including lifting a travel ban on people from several majority Muslim nations, immediately stopping work on Trump's border wall with Mexico, and imposing a 100-day moratorium on deportations for certain non-citizens. Biden also issued orders to protect and strengthen the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, known as DACA. The president followed through on his campaign pledge to quickly propose comprehensive immigration reform legislation. Although specific details of the bill are not yet fully known, the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021, as it's known, is expected to provide expedited pathways to citizenship for DACA recipients and farm workers enable 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. to become eligible for a green card within five years and citizenship in eight years, utilize smart technology to enhance border security, and address the root causes of migration, primarily in Central America. Your reporter spoke with Thomas Sines, President and General Counsel with the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, or MALDEF, Here he assesses Biden's immigration reform proposals and the obstacles ahead in the coming national and congressional debate on reform legislation. Well, I think that he's gotten many, many things right from what we know so far. We are all still waiting to see the bill language, but as it has been described by the administration, it takes important steps to reverse 
legislatively, many of the ongoing depredations of rights that commenced or were worsened under Donald Trump, while also taking steps to address much longer-term concerns about our immigration system. Uh, with respect to the latter, the most important step in the proposal would be to provide a pathway to citizenship for so many of the millions of Americans who are here in an undocumented status and have been here for many years contributing to our economy, uh, to our society's development, and I have to say during the pandemic, so many of them on the front lines, uh, whether that's in healthcare or in agriculture or food service. So many of these immigrants awaiting a legislated pathway to citizenship have really, in the course of the last year, uh, proven how committed they are to the United States, to their families, uh, and to the communities where they live. So that step of providing a pathway to citizenship with different pathways for different groups of, of folks is really critical. Uh, but also critical are some of the steps that it would take to ensure greater due process, whether in our asylum refugee system, uh, whether in reversing, as he has already done administratively, the Muslim ban, uh, whether in ensuring that we are truer to our principles as a nation in how we operate our immigration system. When it comes to passage of substantive immigration reform in Congress, we have a Republican Party that stood with Donald Trump over these past four years and has certainly staked out an anti-immigrant and I would say xenophobic position on immigration. It seems like it'll be a very difficult task to pull in these representatives in the House and senators to jump on board the immigration reform legislation that will be voted on down the line. What are some of your thoughts about how this could go forward? Should should the Democrats pull the plug on the filibuster in order to pass meaningful legislation, not just on immigration, but health care, uh, $15 minimum wage, and a whole set of other pieces of legislation that will be blocked, certainly, by filibusters? Well, I will start by saying that, that the filibuster has a history that is not a great one. It's genesis, it's, it's practice over the years. It, it has not been what it is too often portrayed as some protection for minority rights. So I think there's room for serious discussion about whether the filibuster should continue. But filibuster or no, it's quite clear that we need to return to immigration reform being a bipartisan issue. And prior to 15 years ago, that was the case. Certainly, President George Bush was a champion of immigration reform. There were Senate leaders, John McCain and others, who were leaders on immigration reform. And this came out of a recognition that our economy, including big business, would benefit from immigration reform that includes pathway to citizenship for the millions of immigrants who have been here contributing to our economy. That, under Donald Trump and even before, was eliminated, restricted by this rhetoric that is designed to, frankly, appeal to a thin slice of the electorate, a slice of the electorate that feels threatened by the browning of America, that feels threatened by change, 
And that change was given a face by Donald Trump, and it was the face of a Latino immigrant, frankly, a Mexican immigrant. So we need to arrive at a change from that politics. That is possible if the leadership of the Republican Party would pay attention to the polling that says Americans as a whole wholeheartedly support reform that includes pathway to citizenship. I also believe that supermajorities of our country would support other elements of reform if they were honestly and fairly informed about what our current system is and what it might look like if it were to be the subject of reform. Unfortunately, as you know, we have elements of the media that do not engage in that kind of fair and accurate depiction, particularly of our immigration system. That was Thomas Sines, President and General Counsel with the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Find more analysis and commentary on President Biden's immigration reform proposals by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In the aftermath of the deadly January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol that attempted to block congressional certification of the winner of the 2020 presidential election, the FBI and other law enforcement agencies have arrested more than 150 pro-Trump rioters who participated in the siege and opened over 400 case files. The U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia is looking at significant felony cases tied to sedition and conspiracy. The insurrectionists maintain they were driven to storm the Capitol by President Trump's baseless claim that his election victory was stolen by fraud, a provable lie that was validated by 147 Republican legislators. While Trump supporters swarmed the Capitol's halls and congressional offices looking for legislators to hold hostage or kill, many more members of pro-Trump militia groups were watching the attack unfold on their TV sets at home, unsure whether or not this was the opening battle of a new American civil war. After 25,000 National Guard's troops were deployed to protect the Capitol in advance of Joe Biden's inauguration, predicted mass protests by armed right-wing groups in Washington and other state capitals didn't materialize. Your reporter spoke with journalist Mike Giglio, who's reported from war zones in Syria, Iraq, and Ukraine, and is author of the book Shatter the Nations, ISIS, and the War for the Caliphate. In a series of recent articles, Mike has profiled members of armed pro-Trump militia groups in an effort to better understand their motivation, mindset, and future intentions. Here he recounts some of the conversations he's had with militia group members about their reactions to the January 6th Capitol attack and what they believe their role to be in our divided nation in the post-Trump era. After what happened at the Capitol, the entire country is all of a sudden focused on these groups and people who are part of them. Law enforcement's hyper-focused, the media's hyper-focused, just I think regular Americans are hyper-focused on them. And so I, I really just felt compelled, like, I want to go back out and just meet people face-to-face and in quiet places. Like, I don't, I don't want to go to a protest and have someone sound off, you know. I want to talk with people when they have their guard down a little bit. And also I want to reconnect with people that I'd met before so that there was some level of trust there already. And just ask them, like, what was their own reaction to what happened? And in what I think is positive, most of them thought that what happened at the Capitol was a mistake, that the violence, at least, was a mistake. And instead of 
doing what you might expect, you know, inflaming the situation or talking tough, which is what they're kind of famous for doing and threatening things. They actually were the opposite, the people I spoke to at least. And it's not possible to get a sampling of these groups because there are hundreds of them. So I'm speaking a very limited subset of people. But the people I spoke to, they were hoping that other groups were feeling the same way. So, so it was a move more of de-escalation. There was an interesting investigation that resulted in the arrest of a bunch of militia guys in Michigan where they had plans to kidnap the governor of Michigan, hold her hostage. There was some discussion of assassinating her. It almost seemed like a blueprint for what later on occurred or what could have occurred at the U.S. Capitol. Did you have much discussion about the militia groups and what they were planning to do or alleged to be planning to do in Michigan and how that related to their their own view of their mission and whether they departed from that kind of action or had a completely different view of what their purpose was? I, I, I think the lesson from both of those events is just how important it is what the Republican media and political establishment is saying and how that's interpreted by militia-type groups. So after the day that the FBI made those arrests in Michigan, the alleged plot to kidnap the governor, I called someone in Michigan who knows some of the people who were arrested and who has been in the militia movement in Michigan for a very long time. And I asked him, like, hey, like, what's going on? Do you know anything about this? And he said, I know two of the guys who were arrested. I wouldn't have expected that they would do something like this. And obviously that's a bad idea. But, and this is, like, crucial, he, he said something to the effect of the, the governor has been acting tyrannical. We have been charged with upholding the laws of the state because she won't. And therefore, it is within our rights to act as a law enforcement body and basically arrest her. So if they were doing that, they were doing the right thing. That's sort of what, what the conversation was. If you look at what Republicans in Michigan have been saying since the start of the pandemic, it's eerily close to that. They are saying she's a tyrant, she's tyrannical, and the people need to take things in their own hands. Without that sort of validation, like cover from the top, I'm not sure how much these groups would be willing to carry out these more audacious acts because there's a certain level where they feel enabled and also duty-bound. So if you believe that the Republican Party are patriotic and acting in the best interest of the country and they have access to real information and all that, and they're calling people tyrannical, really raises the question of like what you should do about it. And it was the same thing with the Capitol. So the people who actually plan to take lawmakers as, you know, they're not saying that they're going to, in their head, they're not saying they're going to kidnap them. They're saying we're going to take them and do a citizen's arrest, similar to Michigan. They are, they are getting that idea from Trump, but also from the members of the Republican establishment who are backing his claims that the election was stolen. And they feel like they need to help to uphold the laws of the nation and that they have the support of Trump and Republicans who have been egging them on in this. And it is, it is a very new element. This has never happened before. You have not had, even, even during the Tea Party, even the entire uh, eight years of Obama, you never had Republicans speaking this expressly in language that could inspire militia groups to take matters into their own hands and take potentially violent action like that. Mike, do you think the Republicans are, are aware of the effect they're having, if not before the Capitol insurrection and before the Michigan kidnapping plot? You would think they would know the impact they're having by now, right? No. 
I don't think they do. I think that they are a picture of decadence in that they do not understand the real-world implications of what they are doing. That was journalist Mike Giglio, who's reported from war zones in Syria, Iraq, and Ukraine, and is author of the book Shatter the Nations, ISIS and the War for the Caliphate. Find links to Giglio's recent articles profiling members of pro-Trump militia groups by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Residents of Washington, D.C. have long protested the fact that they lack representation in the federal government beyond the non-voting delegate to the House of Representatives, Eleanor Holmes Norton. The danger this second-class status poses to the District of Columbia was highlighted twice in the past six months, once last June when President Donald Trump activated the D.C. National Guard against peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters, and again on January 6th, when he declined to activate the Guard to support Capitol Police in protecting the Capitol from insurrectionists Trump himself had incited. The mayor of Washington, D.C. has no power over its own National Guard troops. Last June, the House of Representatives passed a D.C. statehood bill for the first time, but it failed to pass in the Senate and must now be reintroduced in the new Congress. The Senate would need 60 votes to pass the measure, unless the body eliminates the filibuster. However, many Senate Republicans assert that a constitutional amendment would be needed to grant D.C. statehood. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Bo Schuff, executive director of the group D.C. Vote, who explains that when the forefathers met in Philadelphia to establish the U.S. government, they created a separate federal district to protect members of Congress, the president, and other U.S. officials from violent assaults by disgruntled actors from any of the states. Here he also discusses the role of race in denying equal representation to the district's 700,000 residents. The entire reason was to make sure that Congress would always be protected from any sort of insurgent mob because they would control all of the federal district. Right? Great concept. It didn't work. The concept that's proposed for D.C. statehood would maintain a federal district so that we're still complying with the Constitution of the United States. All the pieces in the postcards, right, everything that you see, the Capitol building, the Jefferson Memorial, the White House, the Supreme Court building, all of that would stay in a federal district that belongs to all of America because it should be all of America's capital. Uh, It should belong to all of the people. And that area would be patrolled and policed and, and, and protected by Congress. And they would make all the decisions about it because it's their home. Uh, it is the people's house, and therefore they make the decision about the people's capital. The rest of the space, there's 712,000 of us that live here, and we don't live in that area. Nobody's house is in a postcard. We have neighborhoods and jobs and businesses and, and whatever, and we, we deserve full equal representation just like every state. And the only way to do that on a permanent basis is statehood. And so the remainder of that land uh, would be carved around uh, and turn into the 51st state. Beauchef, what is the connection between D.C.'s lack of representation and race? As time develops, D.C. becomes one of the first places to free the slaves. 
uh, to free slavery and to end slavery before the entire country. So the North is working on it, but none of the South has. And before the Emancipation Proclamation is signed, D.C. frees slaves. That makes D.C. the southernmost city for freed slaves or escaped slaves leaving the South, which means D.C.'s African-American population booms. And Congress is now less and less interested in granting voting rights and representation to the District of Columbia. And that's where this all continues. And it's what we see in all kinds of issues around representation and about enfranchisement and about voting. Even if you just look at the most recent election we have, the ballots that were challenged were in Philadelphia and Atlanta and in Detroit and in Milwaukee. And that's it. And those are the most African-American populated cities in each of those states. So we see this time and time again that racial overtones are laid upon voter suppression and, and denial of representation. And that's the exact same issue that we deal with here in the district as it relates to statehood. Bo Shuff, I know Eleanor Holmes Norton has been in Congress for decades as the non-voting D.C. delegate in the House of Representatives. And now in the completely democratically controlled federal government, what do you think are the chances of winning statehood over the next few years? Has President Biden spoken out in favor of statehood? Yep, a couple of times. He is in favor of, of statehood for D.C. Senate Majority Leader Schumer has as well, and so has Speaker Pelosi. It's not a completely partisan issue. In 2007 and 9, for example, we, we, there was a big push to just get Eleanor Holmes Norton to vote. Like She doesn't have the ability to vote on the floor. Uh, and so there was this effort to get her seat made into a full congressional seat. No statehood, but just one vote. And that ended up failing on a bipartisan effort. The last time statehood was brought to the floor of the House, uh, it was defeated, I think, 92, somewhere around there. It was defeated in a bipartisan way. The Democrats didn't vote for it. So it's less about partisanship, and it is more about uh, the education and awareness that the coalition of groups supporting statehood uh, at the national level has brought to this most recent fight. Um, in 2016, this whole thing changed when we put statehood on the ballot in the District of Columbia for the first time in a long time, and voters went in favor by a, a number of 86%, which is huge. And that really got the attention of uh, a bunch of different organizations and different elected officials that there's a real significant desire here, and it's an unbelievable in, injustice. Uh, and we, as at DC Vote especially, started to uh, build the power of the issue outside of the Congress and outside of elected officials, which hadn't sort of been done in a concerted way in a long time. I think that's what's really led to the, the present success, coupled with amazing work by the mayor in, in her uh, relationships across the country and uh, obviously of Representative Norton in the House. Once people learn about this, they know that it is an injustice and it's un-American and it leaves a hole in the heart of our democracy. Uh, and once they learn it, they are eager to get involved. And so we hope that'll continue and we hope to pass it through the House and the Senate and be, have it signed by the president this year. That was Bo Schuff, executive director of the group DC Vote. Learn more about the campaign to make Washington, D.C. the nation's 51st state by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, 
please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WOOL in Bellows Falls, Vermont, KTAL in Las Cruces, New Mexico, KRFY in Sandpoint, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.